Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity Grace Church. It's really uh, exciting for me to be here. Um, it's kind of a very uh, special time time for me. Um, I'm Uncle Russ. Most of you maybe know that. And um, just give you some numbers. That's not how old I am. I'm quite a bit older than that. Uh, but in a lot of ways, um, it's kind of my farewell message to you, to all of you. I am delighted to have been here in this particular part of Toronto and in this particular church building and this church for almost 35 years. This is how long I've kind of spent uh, being a, a, a lay pastor or being an elder or being a shepherd. This is, and uh, I've been telling you, you who who have been here for a few years, that it's time for me to, uh, to kind of uh, pass the torch. It's time for me to, to give, it, give, give the uh, leadership over to those of the next generation. And uh, I've been telling you, and I haven't been able to, but I'm just, I'm really excited. I don't know if I've been as excited in 35 years about the prospects of what God is doing in our city, and especially here at Trinity Grace Church. If you were here last week, it was, for me, just one of my highlights to see the grace of God, to see a new culture, a new community, a new city being birthed here, and to see these uh, women from a different country and culture and religion uh, coming under the grace of God being baptized. So I just, I, I just wanted to take this time to really commend uh, you to the Lord and to his grace. And so this is a perfect, I think, passage for us to look at in terms of, in my very organic, essential, low state, this really is uh, God's new community. So if we look back, this is kind of uh, where... I was kind of when I came here to Leaside Bible Chapel. That's now Trinity Grace Church. I had already been a part-time elder at another small church in Agent Court. And I've made, I've made reference to this idea about passing on the baton. And uh, I don't know how many of you are in love with sports and athletics like I am, but for me, th- as a Canadian, this was my highlight of cheering for Canada. Bruno Cern, born in Haiti, came to Canada as an eight-year-old. It was the 4 by 100 race in, in Atlanta. The United States was in the final. They'd never been beaten, ever, at the Olympics in the 4 by 100 they, I don't think they'd ever been beaten when they made it to the final. And so um, Robert Esmey and Glenroy Gilbert were running, and you weren't sure what was going to happen yet. A lot can happen. And then Bruni Cern, who had actually, actually missed the final in the 100 meters. So he was either mad or he was going to prove something. He took off. And by the time he passed the baton to Donovan Bailey, it was all over. We knew that. And so Bruni Cern did that final pass, and it was an amazing, amazing time in history for Canadian athletics. Those of you that are hockey fans... 
might know that uh, this man here at the top is Ken Dryden. He's a great goaltender. Actually, he played all his life for the Montreal Canadiens, won many cups, uh, raised in, in Etobicoke, played uh, goal for uh, Cornell, and went right from college right into the net for the Stanley Cup finals and um, won the Stanley Cup. And um, Montreal hasn't been as good as they used to be, but they're still kind of the most storied of any professional hockey team. And um, they have a little motto in their dressing room that is taken from this poem here by uh, Dr. John McRae of uh, Guelph, Ontario, who was in the First World War, served there well, died, died there, and he, he penned this poem in Flanders Fields that we teach all of our kids. But in that, in that um, poem, there's this notion about passing the torch. And it's not easy. And it's, it's, it's perilous. Why do you think men get old and never give up? Because they're afraid. They're just afraid of what's going to happen. They don't know the future, and they don't have confidence. And so they just hang on and hang on. So I... Paul, got, Paul became an old man. He was in prison. Things were not going as well as when he was in his peak. And he wrote to another young man and basically gave him this message. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, guard the good deposit. And so to all of you, I'm, I'm trying to give you this, like to give you this message, that the gospel that has been given to you, guard it and make it live. I know most of you don't watch movies, so I'll have to explain this to you. But there was this movie about 20 years ago called Gladiator, and you shouldn't watch it unless you like violence, and, and if you do, then you should speak to Albert. But um, uh, there was this... My, my favorite scene in the whole movie, actually, is, is right at the beginning. Not the big battle. That's pretty gruesome, actually. But there's this scene right at the beginning, and it's winter, and the Roman army has been out for almost three years. And they're trying to quash the last of the barbarians so they can come home and drink, and, and drink their wine and just you know, go to the south of France and enjoy life for a while. And so there's a scene right at the beginning, and it's with the, with the commander of the army who becomes the gladiator, and the emperor, who was getting old and who was dying. And there's this little phrase that was in there that really, I think, captures the essence of a lot that I want to say to you. And they're talking about Rome, which was, at that time, the great empire. And it was working. And it was winning. They had the, they had the science. They had the technology. They had the art. They had everything. And they were just expanding the empire. And there's this little thought, because in the middle of Rome, there was the idea about the emperor as being the head, as being God. And then there was the senate that represented the people. And there was this constant little battle. And there's this idea that if you try to analyze something too much, if you try to actually look at it and take it apart and analyze it as to why it's working, it's not going to work anymore. It's going to break. 
And I think that was very true in what Dave was leading us in prayer about love and about the law of love. Just a few observations about this is a prescription. It tells you exactly what to do. In fact, it's so important the doctor doesn't let you do this yourself. They write it down. They give explicit instructions. Who gives it to another professional, the pharmacist, and finally you have to execute it. It's, it's a prescription. It's telling you exactly what to do and when to do it and all of that. This is something different. This is a description. It's just describing what's already there. And I think when we read the book of Acts, this is an important lesson for us to learn. And this is something that I just cooked up, and it's been helpful for me. That is, you read the book of Acts, and it's exciting. It's scintillating. Every page, and the Lord was adding daily to those being saved. There's 5,000 saved one day. There's 3,000 saved another day. And people are speaking in tongues and understanding languages without going to, to school. It is incredible. And I think what can happen is we might say to ourselves, Holy Spirit, why is this not happening today, to me, now? Well, I believe that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and his writing acts, is describing for us what happened. And it's very easy for us to take that as prescriptive. He's telling us, well, if you just do these things, if you just go in the open air and you preach to people from a different nation, they're just going to be coming to Christ by the thousands. And, I, and God can do that. God may do that, but he doesn't necessarily do it every day, all the time. Luke is describing rather than prescribing. And so this is the little essence, and I don't want to talk about it too much because I'm going to spoil it. But the church, God's new community, is organic. It's growing. It's fragile. It's exciting. It's unpredictable. It's not an organization like General Motors or Toyota or the U.S. military. It's not. It's not an organization. And when we try to make it into one, we lose that essence. Here's something that may disturb you, but, it, but it's true. That the kingdom of God, the church, God's new community, if you want to be part of it, if you want to really understand the fullness of the Spirit and what God is doing, it's going to be something that you're going to catch. Someone can't actually like the University of Bologna in the 14th century, where the professor would stand up in his robes and the smartest minds in Italy would come and he'd lecture them on theology, medieval theology. Um, the church, its true essence is actually is a miracle that something happens in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your body, in your will, and you change. And you can't describe it. You can't analyze it. You can't make it into a systematic book of dogma. 
and just pass it on to the next person and say, read this and you'll know how to invest money, like Benjamin Graham. He writes a book and said, just do it. It's not like that. So, it's a supernatural, life-transforming idea. And it's fueled by grace rather than a legal code. And I want to emphasize that. The church, God's new community, is fueled by grace and not by a set of legal codes. I only say that because it's natural for us, no matter what stage we're at as humans, to to get legalistic and to codify things and to draw lines on things and say that that is wrong and we have to punish that. God's new community is fueled by miraculous grace. Just watch what God has done with your life. You'll get a good model of how we should be being God's church. So in the time that remains, I want to just go over a few essential things about God's new community. These are things, remember, that are essential. You can't define them. You can't analyze them. You can't explain how it got that way. But it is, it's at the root. It's at the very essence of what the church is. Luke says that they were of one heart and one soul. Interesting, he didn't use the mind, though they were very much so of the same mind. But he says, one heart and one soul. The book of Acts, though they had their issues to deal with, and big issues, like what do we do with those ugly, smelly Gentiles? And this is big. This is huge racial, uh, uh, ethnic problem for the Jews. So they had their problems. But they were, and the commentators are united. Luke presents the, the, the early church as being unified with purpose. And we sometimes like to think of unity like this. In step, uniformly dressed, all eating the same thing, all waking up the same time, all reading the same book at the same time. That's not what unity is. Unity is a bit more like this. A lot of birds flock together, all doing different things, but they just want to be there. They want to be part of that community. They want to be there at the same time and enjoying what it means to be a bird sitting in that part of the city. Division is deadly. I don't want to talk about it too much. By the grace of God, the the Christians that have been in this particular part of Toronto for almost 70 years have been, by and large, unified. And the most devastating thing in my 35 years of being an elder or being being a pastor uh, happened when we decided that we needed to to replant, to merge, to join with Trinity Grace Church and Albert and Linda and you who came with him. It was over that event that those 
who I believed were my friends and who saw the essence of the new community uh, turned away and said things that shouldn't have been said. That's not part of God's new community. Luke is, Luke is unanimous that God's new community is, is, <laughs> has things in common. They share a lot of stuff and things and ideas. And, and in particular, they shared material resources. We already read that when we saw Luke explaining of the church in chapter 2. They had things in common. They were not afraid. They were not paranoid about, this is my, this is mine. You hear children say that. And adults basically are the same. Not the early church. They had a whole new idea about community. Now, when you think about having things in common, you have to think about communism. It's the big idea by Marx and Engel. And they basically had this idea. If only we can get rid of the rich. If only we can get rid of those who have power, the ruling class, and redistribute all the wealth, we will all be better off. That was the idea. I remember reading a comic book back in 1965 when I was in grade three or four, and it was science fiction, and it was the idea that no one, no one, you didn't need cash, actually. You just all went to work, and everything was free. That was that little idea about communism. We know how this ended up. The experiment in the 20th century with 10 million people dead, murdered, executed by Stalin, by Pol Pot, by Mao. Community is not communism. Community is just, it, it's the idea, like you have in chapter 2, of fellowship. It's the idea that you are prepared to uh, share things with other people. And, and I'll get back to that. And again, this can't be mandated. The leadership of this church can't say, we expect all of you to tithe, to give 10%. And we've got a pretty good idea about what your salary is, and we know how much you've given, and, you, and uh, we want to have an interview with you because you're giving too much. No, you can't, you can't legislate community. You can't legislate sharing of resources. You can try, but it'll lead to uh, bitterness. It will lead to fear. It will lead to avarice. But the early church had this miraculous idea about sharing freely, as if, on a volunteer basis, as if it doesn't actually belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to our family. It doesn't belong to my parents. It doesn't belong to Trinity Grace. 
it's a resource that we have been given as God's stewards. It's clear that the resurrection was a central part of their message. There were people who had, some of them had witnessed the resurrection. All of them had, 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 uh, had been filled of this, uh, full of God's spirit and what it means to be a new creature in Christ, and be baptized. And that was their thing. They believed in Jesus alive, risen from the dead, literally, in three days. And it says right here, grace was upon them all. They were overflowing with grace. That was the essence of their character. Now, this is not easy today. Maybe some of you know these two men. They're on the right is John Lennox, kind of a chubby, cheerful Welshman, as, as uh, cheerful as a chubby Welshman could be. And then Richard Dawkins, who is not very chubby, but he's not very cheerful. And, there's, and they debated twice. And these are both very, very, very intelligent men. Able to debate at a level that probably none of us could follow, actually. So they have to dumb it down a bit when they have these public debates. So this is the second of the two. I think at the British Natural Museum. That's the, that's the dinosaur stuff there at the bottom. But if you were to go back to this debate, and it was a good debate, and it was fair, and it was civil. It really was. Until at the very end, when Mr. Lennox was giving his closing remarks, and he said unequivocally, as a Christian, he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it was a miracle. And at that point, Mr. Dawkins just said, look at him. There he is. How can you now? It's fine when he talks about quantum theory and multiverses and all of his mathematics. That's all fine. But now look what he believes in. In other words, he's an imbecile. And he was just sort of heaping um, kind of contempt on this brilliant man. So it's not easy to talk to your neighbors about the resurrection. But as Albert said to us last week, and I believe this is really, really true, and it's, and it's truer today somehow than maybe when I was your age. And that is, like the early Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, and the Spirit is in you, and you wish to be full of the Spirit, and you've experienced the Spirit, then you must have something to say about it. You must have your story. And you can tell it. You can tell that. Of what you have become. Of what you know about the gospel, the life of Jesus, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what effect that has on your life. That's something that you can tell. People can reject it. People can shrug their shoulders. People may walk away, but it is your story. And apparently today... The story is important. The journey is really important these days. Not the destination, the journey. So you can tell them what Jesus has done in your life, in your community, in your family. And if he hasn't done anything, well, maybe you need to reach out to him. Maybe you need to believe. Maybe you need to take the risen Jesus pretty seriously. 
and, and engage with him, like Paul did. Let's move on. The other thing that they did is, is that they had a, a kind of a volunteer uh, redistribution of their essentials, of their material. What happened is that they had as a guiding principle that there should be no needy among us. So this, this word need is there in Acts, and it's there again in chapter 2. In other words... They weren't afraid of a means test, for lack of a better word. There were people amongst them who had needs. And it's true today. There are people in our community that have needs. And those who had in excess, it, it's not as if everyone had the same thing, because there were those people that did have property. They did really have property, and they didn't have to sell it. They didn't have to liquidate everything and become a peasant or a monk. But those who had sufficient resources simply liquidated those assets or gave in kind to those who had need. That's an essential part of the community. And you can't teach that. You can model it and trust the Spirit is going to take that and make it Organic in whoever is going to be following Jesus. You can do that. You can simply pray and you can believe in the big idea. You can, you can believe that the essence of the new community is sharing of our wealth instead of the mode in which we do our music or, or, or where we sit. or There's a whole lot of other things that, that Christians get very upset about and leave and get mad and write tracks about. These early Christians were actually voluntarily selling and giving to those who had needs. And it was a beautiful thing. And it should be part. I'm, I'm praying that these essentials are going to be part of this believing community. Long past when the Metrolinx LRT finally gets in. Long past when it needs to be repaired in 50 years or until the Lord comes. I really pray that that's going to happen. They had another idea about this kind of uh, almost a naive trust in their leaders. The news is full of stories of men in power who should not be trusted because they have taken power and money and run with it and used it to, to, to pad their own accounts and their own sense of well-being. Not so in God's new community. Those who did have access and those who, who said, I want to share this with those who have need, simply did that. They sold their asset or they brought whatever they had and they put it at the feet of the apostles. In other words, I'm now giving you the stewardship of this 
amount of money or this particular chicken or whatever it was. And in today's age, this is ludicrous that you would actually take your hard-earned money, your hard-earned vehicle, whatever you have, your bicycle, (laughs) your coat, your hat, your watch, your smartphone, you'd actually take that and you'd actually entrust it to these men who maybe can be corrupted by money and power and sex and all those things. This is another revolutionary thing. And I'm, as I'm stepping down from being an elder here, I'm telling you, and I'm, I'm, skeptic, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical uh, in our prayer meeting, we had, had a little bit of joke about the Nigerian people that were saying, you know, if you just give me your, your bank, I'm going to give you $5 million. <laughs> like, I'm really skeptical forever about any uh, easy way. You know, give me $1,000 and I'll give you back 10 in a week. I just don't believe these things at all. And to my fault, where I hear an idea and say, oh, that's going to be a bad idea. That'll never work. No, too risky. I have full trust in the current group of leaders here at Trinity Grace Church. Full confidence in them. Especially when it comes to this particular sensitive idea about our hard-earned money. I have full confidence in them. I started with a personal story about how I got here, and I'm going to end with a little bit of a story, and uh, some of this might be embarrassing, and some of you in the audience are actually in some of these photos, so keep your eyes open. So um, I, at one time, I was actually a young man. And so, so, so this was me. This wasn't me on steroids. This was just when you're in Scarborough and there's nothing else to do, you're just out there doing it. And so I was a child of the 60s. And um, middle class, white, suburban, just doing the things that kids did. But in all other senses, I was great needs, lonely. My family was fragmenting. I thought the important things in life were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not in that order. And, and then something amazing happened to me. This is the essential, miraculous part, is my life kind of intersected with one of God's uh, new communities. And this is what they looked like. Now now you might think that is scary. These are the people who my life, through the gospel, moved into. Uh, my, My life just got swarmed by this very kind of uh, small, low, very low people, like just assault, uh, grass of the earth, just low people. But they had no problem in sharing what they had with me. They had uh, no problems being God's new community. They would have me in their homes. And remember, I was somewhat of a dangerous character. 
didn't look like them, didn't smell like them, didn't drink or smoke the same things they were drinking and smoking. And they, out of grace, they just accepted me the way I was. Now, of course, we got color very soon after I got into God's <laughs> new community. And these are mostly uh, belong to Fiona McNabb, now Wilkes. These are her photos. Bottom right there is Ravi Zacharias, actually. So I, I just basically saw these people my age who were in every other way the same as me, except they had, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of God, were now motivated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, that just changed my whole life. And I'm only saying this because I don't know where you are. I don't know if you want to be part of God's new community or not. But I'm, I'm saying this really is the essence of what God can do in one's life. And go back to the picture with Allison and myself. Um, we have tried to model what happened to us. Yeah. I've tried to emulate, not as well as, the people who would have me over on Sunday because they knew my parents were divorced and there's nothing else for me to do. Have me over on a Sunday, just the whole day. And I ate so much roast beef, I just can't believe it how they would feed someone like me for that long and then just go out to an evening meeting, someone's, someone's living room, have some apple pie. You know, it was just, it was just, it was just uh, the sharing of God's love in a gracious way. And that has been my story. I'm sorry. I don't know what your story's been being a follower of Jesus, but my story has been consistently that. By God's grace, I have been part of the new community. And I know that that's the temperature in this room right now. And so I feel excited to be stepping down and leaving the leadership and the work of God to you. So, Godspeed. Thank you.